That's a clown question, bro. Hi, what's up, Bunny? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And welcome to the show to be named later special edition of the show to be show to be named later. I am your host, Chris Gianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is the newly 20 years old Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? How does it feel? Have a team. I am a, I am a, I'm a new man. I am starting a new decade of life, I guess. Yesterday, at the time we were recording this yesterday, which would have been Monday, uh, I turned 20 years old. Uh, it really doesn't feel much different at this point, but I mean, I guess there is a new digit, new number on the first digit of my age. So uh, I guess that is very different. Yeah, I know that's only happened that, once every 10 years. That's going to feel weird for me because like uh, 19, it's, it's still like you you feel like a bit of a kid, I guess, but 20 is just, I feel like that's going to be yeah. weird. By me. the end of this decade, I'm going to have to do everything on my own. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's that's just how it is. Today we are talking about a guy who made his major league debut at 20 years old. They did. Like a lot of like a lot of the people on our list. I'm nowhere close. What is this? Uh, I mean, it's it's disappointing. Neither am I. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Ted Williams who had a spectacular rookie year, of course, mm-hmm. in 1939. This is part one of a uh, two-part episode. Yes. We're going to start doing two parts now just because it it makes more sense to ha- kind of have each um, topic in- represented individually, but it's not separate ep- episodes necessarily because, you know, we still do it in one night and, you know, we don't want to give the impression that we're do- doing really more episodes than we actually are. So, yeah, we'll... We'll do recording once a week, posting twice a week. Yes. So we're going to be doing Wednesdays and Fridays. And as of now, we are currently on Spotify. I had no idea how easy it was, but we're now on Spotify. And uh, of course, we're we've always been on YouTube. But yeah, and uh, you know, as far as MLB news goes, today was the today is the first day of like hard negotiations between players and. Do we want to talk about that a little? Cause yeah, maybe a little bit. I, I'm not very informed on the topic, though. I'll, hold on. I'll pull up some Jeff Passon tweets because uh, he discussed – no, I'm sorry. I think it was – yeah, okay. Jesse Rogers from ESPN uh, tweeted out a couple notes. Uh, about 65% of all players will make a million or less with what the MLB uh, owners um, came up with. And the minimum – uh, would be 262k, which I know that you know without, and there's actually some more too. But before I get into that, like I know that you know sounds like, oh, it's it's 262k, like that's still more than than most people are making. Like why is it such a problem? It's a problem because the billionaire owners uh, are sort of coming off as a lot more greedy in this scenario. Uh, here's some more notes: uh, a player making 35 mil would actually make 7.8 mil, uh, which is a huge difference. Like if you're Mike Trout, you, you're getting 7.8 mil a year. Uh, that's wrong, regardless of how much of a season you're playing. Uh, a player making 10 mil would get about 2.9 mil, and a player making 1 mil would get 434K. 
Yeah, I so, mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely weird. And, you know, you kind of want the owners to, I guess, kind of take, especially in this time, kind of, uh, you know, leave a little more money for the players. But, I mean, you know, to, you know, the, the league minimum before this was like 555000 or something like that. And yeah. when you consider there's no uh, ballpark revenue and there's probably going to be half a season, it makes sense a little bit. But, you know, I know that there's going to be a lot of a lot more negotiations there. And I, f- I feel like they'll meet in the middle somewhere. They they should. I sure hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am going to go insane if there's no baseball this year. Uh, but we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's basically that's basically it. I mean, it's the first day of negotiations, so there's probably a lot more on hand for yeah. the next week. Um, but now over to Ted Williams Teddy Ball Game. Uh, yes, we'll start off Splinter. with with how his life kind of started and Ted Williams. Ted Williams grew up uh, born and raised in San Diego, California, born in 1918. And, you know, he was, uh, he was kind of left alone a lot as a child. His mother dedicated to herself to, you know, humanitarian, humanitarian type stuff, uh, you know, dedicated herself to the Salvation Army. But unfortunately for, you know, her two sons, they were kind of uh, left alone a lot not saying that she was doing a a bad job necessarily but uh, Ted Williams and his brother were left alone and also you know his father was around but he wasn't around very much he was doing a lot of work uh, outside of the house so how Ted and his brother Danny would would kind of blow off steam or whatever or you know interact with other people they would constantly play baseball at the local pre- playground. There was no little league at the time, but they had uh, they had a local pre- playground to um, hone their skills with, and they were able to, uh, you know, make a pretty good baseball player out of Ted Williams. And eventually, Ted Williams, uh, I believe he was probably noticed in high school, and there was a Pacific Coast League team. Uh, it's a you know a small professional professional league at the time. Now it's a triple A league, but it, it wasn't that at the time. And it was the Pacific Coast League team called the San Diego Padres because there was no other San Diego Padres at the time. Baseball had not went westward yet. So the San Diego Padres noticed Ted Williams and uh, they picked him up at the age of 17. So Ted Williams was playing baseball, playing professional baseball at the age of 17, you know, not making major league money, but still very impressive from Mr. Williams. And uh, eventually he got spotted by a guy scouting him. It was Red Sox general manager, Eddie Collins. Eddie Collins also uh, a hall of famer. uh, Highest uh, position player war from anyone born in New York. Correct. And uh, 3,000 hit club. He might be mm-hmm. like top 10 in hits or something like that. Yeah, and he's very underrated for all time. 
yeah, that man, that general manager, uh, noticed Ted Williams in 1937, and uh, Williams was signed to the Red Sox. The Red Sox how finally often, how often do you see a Hall of Fame player? How often do you see a Hall of Fame player turn into a Hall of Fame executive? I don't know exactly the full story of how Eddie Collins was as a GM, but I mean, you get you notice Ted Williams, you're not doing too bad for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a uh, pretty crazy. You know, I I can't imagine like can't imagine like uh like larry walker just yeah. scouting or like even even someone better like uh george brett george just brett around, just turning around and, and making big moves probably for the royals yeah like you know manager i guess you know paul molitor kind of translated yeah. but general manager that's you know pretty tall task but i guess there wasn't really anybody else working there not one you really see very often. I don't know. Are any major league GMs former players that I can think of right now? Not, you know, to the level of Eddie Collins for sure. Yeah, I can't think of anyone. I don't think, I don't think there are any. Yeah, I know in the NFL, uh, John Lynch was a former mm-hmm. safety, and he became John like Elway a GM, too. But that's football. He's an owner. Yeah, John Elway. John Elway. So I guess it translates more in football. Interesting, yeah. though. Yeah, very, very, very interesting. I guess that's how things worked in 1937, and it worked out for the Red Sox. Ted Williams, uh, he reported to big league camp in 1938 and uh, was a very brash, confident fellow, especially for a 19-year-old. You know, he was – he would just kind of uh, – he was very – you know, had his head very tall in the sky – and they determined he wasn't really major league ready at the time. As, you know, he's, he's a 19-year-old too. But with the Minneapolis, Minneapolis Miners, which was the Red Sox minor league affiliate, he hit 366 with a 701 slugging percentage. And uh, that kind of changed people's mind, minds on uh, whether he was slugging. big league ready or not. And he sure was big league ready. He made his major league debut debut in 1939 and uh for that season he hit 327 436 609 for a 1045 ops to start off his career uh, with a rookie record 145 rbis he also hit 351 with runners in scoring position that year he pretty much did everything right at age 20 and his 1045 ops in his rookie year wouldn't be undone until aaron judge in 2017 almost 80 years later uh, that stood. Uh, and he was third in war and OPS for that season and would always appreciate the fans and tip his cap, like really man of the people, you know? And uh, yeah, so that was the rookie season of Ted Williams. Uh, in 1940, uh, after spending the offseason fishing in M- Minnesota, uh, Harold Case, Case, how do I pronounce that? Uh, K- uh, Kaza. Harold Kaza wrote, quote, can you imagine a kid a nice kid with a nimble brain, not visiting his father and mother all of last winter. Uh, all of him fishermen as well. Um, and this sort of started his negative attitude towards the media, and understandably so. Like, it's not something I'd want to hear about me, especially from someone who doesn't know me on that personal of a level. And uh, a relationship with the media might have cost him a few awards uh, here and there throughout his career. And 
he only hit four home runs through his first 41 games of 1940, which caused a lot of backlash from fans. And this sort of started a, another negative attitude, not towards the media, but towards fans. And he stopped tipping his cap after because they doubted him uh, when he went through a slump. And he finished with a league-leading 442 OBP despite uh, the tough start. And he finished third in war and OPS. Uh, he had a 1036. And those first two years are definitely a big foreshadowing for uh, Mr. Williams. So that leads into his 1941, where he, he goes into 11th gear. He starts going crazy, crazy with the bat. We'll fast forward to the All-Star game. And, you know, Ted Williams, despite being an absolute superstar that year, he was in the shadow of a counterpart in New York, Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio was in the midst of his famous hit streak. He was 48 games in into that hit streak, which uh, might have been a record at the time. I, I didn't check, but has to be. he was on his way th to, to the record. Um, and, uh, you know, Ted Williams wasn't getting the attention that he deserved. And uh, it leads to the score being five to three National League winning in the bottom of the ninth. And uh, then Joe DiMaggio came up to the plate. And you think, you know, Joe DiMaggio, he's the star. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> not an ad that time from Major League Baseball. So you think Joe DiMaggio, he's the star of the league. He should be able to drive these runners in. He drives one in and, you know, it's bases loaded one out. And luckily uh, only one man was out in that uh, at bat. It was a force out and it scored one run. So then Ted Williams comes up to the plate. It's five to four national league and there's, or five to, yeah, five yeah, to four. four national league with Ted Williams up to the plate. Ted Williams is up to the plate with first and third and two outs. High pressure situation. And also you have to consider like 1941, the all-star game was being taken very seriously because, you know, outside of the world series, this was the only time where the American league stars and the national league stars were going against each other. And, you know, things and were that was really the first time they're on a national stage too. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So Ted Williams comes to the, up to the plate with men on first and third Two outs, pressure pack situation. So Can Ted Williams steals the show in the 1941 All-Star game uh, and sets up the rest of that season for him. Random side note, can we, uh, can we bring back dressing like that to baseball games? What, just suits and hats? Yeah, j just for baseball games strictly, though. Only baseball games? Yeah. That would, especially like... Just for like, just for like one day, I want a team to do that. Just be like, dressed like the 40s. Yeah, if that's happening, that's got to happen in like April. I'm not. I'm not going to be able to sit. Oh, I know. Not uh, in a summer game. No, no, no. Yeah, no way. But I think as a or theme, even like 
a team with a dome, just like put the AC on. Yeah, possibly. Like, uh, like yeah, do a do a promotional thing. You wear like a suit, and like the the girls wear whatever. You know, I don't know what the formal wear. And then like they give away like hats or whatever, like top exactly. Hats. There's the straw hats like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that would work. I would. I think that'd be great. That would be a good promo night just for one. Just one day. Just do just it. Just one day. Yeah. Screw it. Yeah. Go ahead. So Ted Williams, he's skipping around the bases, and he steals the show in that 1941 All-Star game. Steals the spot, spotlight right from Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio's streak ends July 16th, which, which was uh, like a little, a little over a week after uh, that All-Star game. But what if I told you that Ted Williams actually was better than Joe DiMaggio during Joe DiMaggio's famous hit streak? Joe DiMaggio... During his hit streak, he hit 408 with an 1181 OPS. Unprecedented. Very, very, good. very good. Who can top that? Ted Williams can top that. He had a 412 average with a 1224 OPS. He had a four-point four uh, average higher than Joe DiMaggio during the 56-game hit streak that Joe DiMaggio had. It's wild. Crazy. So then we fast forward to July 25th where Ted Williams goes two for three, uh, two for three with a home run against the Cleveland Indians. And uh, that upped his average to 400. And that average would never dip below 400 again during that season. From that game moving forward, he hit 417 with a 594 on base percentage and a 1398 on base percentage. 13 and then he- heading into the last day of the season, he's uh, ready to play a doubleheader. His average, you know, this is a famous story. His average is 399.6. So it would round up to 400 because we use, you know, three digits mm-hmm. when we're talking about average. And, you know, the manager at the time, Joe Cronin, said he would actually let Ted Williams sit the last day. Uh, you know, if you wanted to, and if you wanted to maintain that 400 batting average. And in classic Ted Williams fashion, Ted Williams decides he's going to play the doubleheader, both games one and two. And of course, he goes six for eight with a home run and a double in that series, going, ending the season with a 406 batting average. Of course, no one has hit 400 since. Ted Williams hits 406. No one's reached 400 ever since then. And it's not even like, it's not even like Ted Williams, you know, he it wasn't like he was a singles hitter. It wasn't like he was not getting extra base hits too. And it's not like he was, walk, you know, not walking either. He had a league leading 553 on base percentage. Also, 735 slugging percentage, a 1287 OPS, a 10.4 baseball reference war, 11 fangraphs war, 147 walks, 135 runs, and 37 home runs. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. And if you thought, you know, that 553 on base percentage, that must be, that's crazy. Is that like a record or something? At the time, that was a single season record. That was a that 553 on base percentage was a single season record at the time. 
and it would take Barry Bonds in of 2002 of to course. break that record. Who, who else is going to break that record? Barry Bonds in 2002 during that four-year stretch. Can't say I'm surprised at all. Like, that was, that was the most unreal four-year stretch probably in the history of sports. Correct. Yeah, and, you know, it, it took 61 years to break that on-base percentage record. And I don't think 609 is ever going to be broken, uh, just my no. opinion. Nope. It's pretty much impossible. Barry Bonds broke it multiple times, too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, back to the 1941 season, only two men, only two men have had a better single season OPS than Williams did in, two, uh, in 1941. And uh, those two men were Babe Ruth and Barry Bonds again. But no shame in losing to those guys. In the midst, in the midst of, you know, only two men having a higher OPS, having the uh, all-time single-season record for on-base percentage, loses the Most Valuable Player Award to Joe DiMaggio, who, uh, you know, was on the winning team and he had that famous hit streak, and I guess that's how the writers thought back then. Yeah. I guess I guess that's... That, that vote goes differently in 2020. Yeah, for sure. Ted Williams gets that nod unanimously uh, in today's in today's day. Yeah. But then in 1942, well, actually, story probably starts December 1941. Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, and obviously, the uh, the U.S. wants their youngest, strongest, most most athletic men to fight the Japanese and also fight. Uh, you know, the Germans, the whole Axis party. And uh, they're going to, they want their uh, baseball players, you know, a ton of guys, Joe DiMaggio, Hank Greenberg, among, among many others, baseball kind of, uh, kind of died between 43 and 45. But, you know, Ted Williams, he was asked to do service like in 1942 and he didn't want to go into service at 1942 and he made a deal with the U.S. Navy that after that 1942 season, he would join them and he would, you know, fight out the rest of the war. And in that 1942 season, he wins the Triple Crown. He hit 356 with 36 home runs and 137 RBI. To go along with that, uh, he leads in the most important stats as well. Leads an on-base percentage at 499, slugging percentage at 648. OPS at 1147, walks with 145, runs with 141, baseball reference war with 10.4, and fan graphs war with 11.6. And again, he loses the MVP to a Yankee, not Joe DiMaggio this time, but instead, instead a Yankee, Joe Gordon, because I guess, you know, I guess one player can lead a team. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess Ted Williams did not did not lead his team well enough. It wasn't, didn't have to do anything. Mike, Mike Trout would be terrible if, if it was looked at like this. Mike Trout would have one MVP. It would be uh, in 2014. 2014. Which is still like statistically his worst season, which is even funnier. Would, yeah, which is hilarious. It's, that's correct. So yeah, Ted Williams loses the MVP after winning the Triple Crown. Uh, oh. And, you know, obviously I think the, the writers kind of had a gripe against him as well. So that didn't that didn't help him either and obviously that ends his 
uh, baseball career for the moment, uh, you know, pauses, puts the baseball career on pause for a little bit. And in those first four years of his career, 1939 to 1942, he slashed 356, 481, 642 for an 1123 OPS, also averaged 32 home runs and 124 walks per year. And of all players in baseball history, all, all of baseball history, all 150 years of it, he holds the record for most walks, highest on base percentage, highest slugging percentage, highest OPS, and highest wins above replacement in the first four seasons. Uh, Ted Williams got out of the gates hot. So then he goes Literally into the, the best Navy. Start in major league history. What was that? Literally the best start in major league history. Literally. In all, all facets of the game, or, you know, all combined facets of the game, best start in baseball history. So he goes into the Navy. And he was trained to be a pilot. And he became so good, so well-educated in the topic that, you know, he, he was made an instructor, actually. He was instructing people that went off to war. And that's basically how he served World War II. He didn't see combat, but he trained the pilots that were going into combat. And, uh, you know, after 1945, what a relief for him. He gets to go back and play baseball. And what does he do when he comes back in 1946? So allegedly, uh, he hits a ball on June 9th, 1946, that goes 502 feet into right field at Fenway. If you go to Fenway today, there is a red seat uh, among a sea of green that marks where that ball landed. Uh, there's a lot of conspiracies out there over whether this happened or not. Chris, what is your stance on that? I feel like, um, I think the, theory that I would go with or that seems most believable and I guess I didn't research enough on it mm-hmm. home plate might have been further up a little bit but I feel like he still hit it 502 feet he definitely still hit it yeah I would buy that because that's like reasonable but that, that red but like, is insane uh like yeah like David Ortiz would go out there with a metal bat and like not even t- sniff it yeah 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 um I went on a tour of Fenway a few years ago and our tour guide talked about the red seat and he got deep into the details of like the fan that was sitting in that seat at the time. And apparently he was from Albany, New York, which is my hometown. So I would like to believe that it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, 518 represent Uh, on July 14th of that same season, the Indians put their second baseman in short right field, their shortstop at second and their third baseman at the shortstop position uh, to create the Ted Williams shift where everyone goes to the right side of the field, essentially, as much as possible. And, yeah, and that is why that is why Mitch Moreland never gets any base hits. Sad. Yep. Uh, and he would actually get criticized for not attempting to hit it to left field. However, despite all this, he still leads the league that season in OBP with a 497, a 667 slugging, an 1164 OPS, 10.6 baseball reference war, and an 11.8. Fangraphs for and he finally wins his first MVP that season. Uh, the Red Sox were obviously very good. They went 104 and 50, and they played exhibition games uh, against a group of AL players while waiting for the NL to be decided in their three-game playoff. During this uh, series of exhibition games, Ted got hit by an elbow, hit on the elbow by a pitch, and it may have affected him in the World Series because in that World Series. Uh, he hit 200 with a 
33 OPS, and he went one for six with runners in scoring position. Not very good. And the team lost in seven games. So, you know, that 1946 World Series with, I believe, the Cardinals could have gone a lot differently. Yeah, yeah. And in 1947, the next season, he wins his second triple crown, hitting 343, driving in 114 runs, and hitting 32 bombs. And he was the only American League player to win multiple triple crowns at the time. Is he? Is that? Does that still stand? Yeah, that still stands. Of course, and of course it is. He's, he's one of two players ever to uh, do it ever. Rogers Hornsby did it uh, in the National League. Nice. And he led the AL in OBP that season with a 499, slugging with a 634, OPS with an 1133, walks with 162. That's one for every game in the season. Not at that time, but at this time. Uh, 125 runs. And he also led both uh, wins above replacement sites. Uh, he loses the MVP, unfortunately, to Joe DiMaggio once again in possibly the most absurd MVP decision ever. Obviously, it was looked at differently back then but it still raises an eyebrow. Uh, DiMaggio had less than half the war that Ted Williams had. Uh, he was tied for sixth in baseball reference war and 12th in F war, but of course he was on the team that won the pennant, so by default uh, he wins the MVP. In 1948, he leads every slash line category. What else is new? Uh, he finishes second in war and third in the MVP vote, and the team loses game 155, which is essentially uh, game 163. It's a uh, playoff tiebreaker to the Indians. They lost it 8-3. to The Indians, of course, went on to win uh, the most recent World Series title in their history after that. And uh, in 1949, he has a record 84-game on base streak. That is well over half the season consecutively he got on base. Uh, he led the league in OBP slugging OPSB war FR because, of course, he did. And the team lost the last two games in New York, resulting in losing the pennants. And he won his second MVP that season. And then it starts to get a little quieter uh, at the turn of the decade. In 1950, uh, he's having another great year, but then he shatters his elbow once again, uh, going for a fly ball at Yankee Stadium. And he only played 85 games. Uh, but minimum 400 plate appearances, he still did what he could, led in slugging and OPS. So injury-riddled 1950 turns to 1951, his 10th year. He is a career low in slugging and OPS, uh, but he still leads the league, of course. Well, because why not? Why would he not? Yeah. Literally the worst year of his career, and he still leads the league because that's what Ted Williams does. He leads the AL in war, and he finishes 13th in the MVP vote. Uh, but of all the players in baseball history, uh, he has the most walks, highest WP, and highest war in the first 10 seasons of a career. Yes, yes. I think the the stat, the, my favorite stat of Ted Williams is in his 10th year, his career low slugging and OPS led the league. Led the league, yeah. That's the most hilarious thing that I've probably found ever. And yeah, yeah, highest war, highest wins above replacement in the first 10, 10 seasons of a career. Uh, trip, you know, I found that out from researching Albert Pujols, who was number two on that mm. list. So then in 1952, uh, you know, the Korean War is heating up. And, you know, Ted Williams was in the reserves at the time. Uh, I think it got him some extra money. But the country was in need of pilots. And Ted Williams obviously was very educated 
uh, with his pilot, with his knowledge of flying. And Williams was actually sent into active duty. So unlike World War II, he is in combat now, which is something you definitely have to worry about if you're the Boston Red Sox. So, uh, of course, before that, Ted Williams played six games total. And in Williams' sixth and final game of 1952, he hit a go-ahead home run in his last at-bat, and that helped the Red Sox win 5-3. to three. So a, a hero's exit at the time. Just real quick, one, one more. Let me get one more in before I go off to fight for our country. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, I, yeah, let's, let's end on a good one. Let's get, end on a good one. So he flew on 39 combat missions in Korea. And, you know, I don't really have, I don't really have much, uh, much of a scale that I, that I know with like combat missions, but 39 combat missions seems like a lot every yeah. time you're taking a risk of, of dying. And uh, actually there is a cool story on the uh on a pbs documentary american masters uh that you know shared pretty much exactly what happened with ted williams on his third mission we almost didn't get to see the last uh seven years of his career because of what happened on uh this mission so i'll let Um, I do something wrong. I will let PBS American Masters tell the story. Combat. He flew scores of missions and had this one harrowing experience. I got down too low and I got hit with small ground fire and I started a little fire gun. The plane was on fire. I mean, you cannot imagine a more dangerous situation. If you were going to follow the strict protocol, he should have bailed out. But he didn't want to do that. He was afraid that if he ejected, he would cap his knees and never be able to play again. So he determined that he was going to land this thing. But he was heading the wrong way. Luckily, one of the guys on the mission flew up right alongside him, could tell that he was out of radio, and so they were doing hand signals. Without him, I'm not so sure I'd have got back into K-13 or 14 where the hell I landed. And making it even worse, the landing gear was stuck. The wheels wouldn't come down. I was scared, certainly I was scared, and I was mad. If I get scared, I'm mad. He gets mad, and he looks to the sky. I said, oh, the goddamn Christ. It's the time old Teddy ballgame needs you. If you're up there, now would be a good time to help me. I don't think I had 10 seconds more in the air before things flew apart. And he skids and fires coming out. He skidded to a stop finally at the very end of the runway. Jumped out of the plane and the th thing burst into flames. He was unbelievable. Yeah, that was a that was a great documentary that uh, that I saw. I had to rent it for a few bucks, but it's you know it's well worth the time. If yeah, you're at home, one. I saw it when it first came out. Yeah, I I did not, but yeah, it is a uh, it's a very good documentary. Kind of shapes his life in a very good way. Uh, gives you a good idea of who he was as a person. But uh, back to his 1953, back to his war run in Korea. Uh, after he came back to the U.S., came back a little early um, because the war was 
pretty much over and you know they I think they like honorarily discharged him a little bit early and uh, there's a legendary story of what he was able to do in his first batting practice legend has it that he hit 13 home runs in a row in his first batting practice back from Korea months months prior he literally almost died and like was may have had to get like his legs amputated or his arms or something like that now here he is hitting 13 in a row at Fenway yeah and uh I really I really would like to believe this story because you know it just like hitting was just it seems legit like it definitely seems believable yeah yeah and you know I say I say hitting was in his blood but also one thing just kind of a side note he hated when people said he was a natural because he thought it would offend his, uh, his hard work. So I I hope I didn't upset Ted Williams a little there, but back to 1953 where he is actually able to uh, have a, like a quarter of a season in 1953 Mm -hmm. (laughs) after coming back from war, he hit 407 with a 14-10 OPS in 37 games in 1953. And I know that this stat is minimum 100 plate appearances, and I, I guess that's a small sample size. Very small. But, but for for anyone to finish a season with at least 100 plate appearances, he is the all-time leader in slugging percentage with 901. 901. An OPS of 901 after coming back from war would have been insane. We're yeah. talking slugging percentage here. Yeah, we're taking the, the on-base percentage out of this equation, just the slugging percentage. It was crazy. And of all seasons uh, where they where a player ended up with 150 plate appearances or less, his 13 home runs are the most ever. And uh, he only had 110 plate appearances. Joke. And, you know, it's not like I looked at guys – Guys is like first 110 plate appearances. I know there's probably more, uh, more home runs in the first 110 plate appearances, but in the last, and you know, in the in seasons where there was less than 150, his mm-hmm. 13 home runs are the most. That's right. And in 54 through 56, uh, he had to get through injury as well so as some controversy, but he was still the old Ted Williams. Uh, he broke his collarbone in a spring training game. Uh, and didn't start the regular season until May 15th. This was in 1954. And yet, he still led the OB, still led the league in OBP with a 513, slugging with a 635, and OPS with an 1148. He finished second in B-War and led an F-War, even though he missed 45 games. And he, was also, he also set the record for walk rate. 25.9% of his plate appearances he walked, one in every four. And he, only one man has topped it since. Is there, is there any information on who that is? Um, I think it was this Giants player uh, in, like, the early 2000s. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> um, led an OBP, slugging OPS and F-War in the seasons following World War II and the Korean War. And he led in OBP, slugging and OPS uh, in eight consecutive years when qualified. Insane. And in 55, uh, he had uh, to take a bit of a step back for personal reasons. He quote-unquote retired uh, as a strategic move for divorce. 
and he didn't want to pay a large amount of his alimony. Uh, so not making money would, of course, reduce that. And he started the season on May 28th, and a minimum 400 plate appearances. He led in all slash categories. Uh, just for reference, his slash line was 356, 496, 703, flat 1200 OPS. And a 1200 OPS uh, was the highest in the league since 1941. And I'm pretty sure Ted Williams did that that season as well. Um, and in 1956, not, not too much to document, but he led the league in OBP, of course, uh, with a 479. And his 1084 OPS ranked second. So, yeah, his, you know, basically the tra- trajectory of his career, I guess it's slowing down a bit. I guess when you're not leading in uh, OPS and, uh, you know, you're, you only have a 479 on base percentage. Maybe things are slowing down. Maybe uh, time to retire is soon for Ted Williams. But he flips the script, flips the script in 1957. I mean, one of the most, one of the, you know, historic age 38 and 39 seasons. Uh, crazy. So in 1957, he led the league in all slash line categories, had a 388 average, a 526 on base percentage, a 731 slugging percentage, and a 1257 OPS. That was his, his best OPS uh, since his 1941 season and might have been the best in all of baseball since that 1941 season. And that 388 batting average is the best ever for a player in his age 38 season or older best ever and his OPS his OPS ranks uh second for age his OPS ranks second for players in age 38 seasons or better and you know the the fall off after him is pretty major so uh for everyone everyone in their age 38 seasons you know, OPS ranked is Barry Bonds in 2004 with 1422, Barry Bonds in 2003 with 1278, Ted Williams in 1957 with 1257, and then the next best is almost 200 points lower at 1066. So there's a major fall off after Ted Williams. And Barry Bonds. And Barry Bonds uh, in for that age 38 season. And then in 1958, He's still raking, leads the league in average, leads the league in on-base percentage, and leads the league in OPS. And his OPS that year was the second highest OPS for a player in their age 39 season or higher. And, you know, obviously Barry Bonds in 2004 takes the cake. But at the time, it was the best for a player in their age 39 season or better. Mm -hmm. So then in 1959, uh, he kind of takes a step back as one usually does uh, in their later years. Unlike, unlike his age 38 and 39 years, his age 40 season kind of had some, uh, some turmoil there. He had a pinched nerve in his neck and sometimes he had to wear an actual neck brace, uh, kind of a sign of, of his mortality at the time. He started in 75 games uh, he played in 103 because I think he p- pinch hit in a lot of games. He was coming off the bench in a, in a lot of those games in 1959. 
And, you know, he had a 372 on base percentage and a 791 OPS in 331 plate appearances. So this was clearly not the same Ted Williams we were used to seeing. But Still getting on base, though. He's still uh, getting those walks in. Yes, as, as Peter Brand would say, he, he gets, gets on, on base. base. He gets yes. on base. Yeah, but, you know, something that occurred off the field that was very important to, you know, one person in particular, in particular, you know, the Red Sox had their first African-American player ever. I think they might have been the, the last franchise to do it, yeah. which tough, but right. not a good luck. But, uh, you know, Ted Williams was very embracing uh, to this player. The player's name is Pumsy Green, and they actually became throwing partners. Uh, you know, Ted Williams, a 40-year-old, you know, taking the veteran role and also, you know, a very civil role, very socially progressive role. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's huge because this is, you know, 1959. It's during the very middle of the civil rights movement. Um, and yeah. to have an icon like Ted Williams really going out of his way and, and showing his support like that, I think that's a really big step forward uh, for a team that needed it and for a city that needed it. Yeah, and his, you know, his uh, ideas kind of progressed forward as it, as it led into his post-career. But in 1960, this was his final season, he was actually offered the same amount of money that he would earn that he was earning in 1959, but he actually refused to take it. Imagine, imagine that, you know, a player refusing, refusing to take money. Um, I don't know if there was a players association back then, maybe they were a little upset, but he actually took a 30% pay cut for that 1960 season. Hilarious. Because, you know, he, he thought he should be getting what he earned based on the previous season. And, uh, he would he would be rolling in his grave right now at the at the players association today. Yeah, I guess I guess for better or for worse, but I I guess that is the truth. Mm-hmm. But you know, Ted uh, Ted Williams, on June seventeenth of his final season in nineteen sixty, he actually became the third member of the five hundred home run club. No footage of that to be seen. That's like the first time that's happened for us. We're actually uh, I couldn't find Willie Mays's. Uh, 500th home run, but his 600th was available. So there we go. But, but nothing, nothing for for Ted Williams there. But uh, also, Ted Williams as a whole in that season was back to his spectacular self. He wasn't, you know, in that 1959, uh, you know, mentality or 1959, you know, physical ability. Didn't have any ailments and. Uh, you know, he didn't play in as many games. He still had, I believe, less than 400 plate appearances. But minimum 350 plate appearances. He led the league in on-base percentage, slugging, and OPS. Had a 451 on base, a 645 slugging percentage, and a 1096 OPS to close that uh, season out. And also minimum 350 plate appearances. He has the highest on-base percentage, slugging percentage, and OPS of a player in an, in his age 40 season or older. Most or best all time. And then that leads to his legendary, his legendary, his legendary last at bat, 
there's no raw uh, footage of it that, you know, was put up on. Broadcasted. Yeah, that was broadcasted. But there is footage and, you know, there's going to be talking over it. But it is, it is from, you know, very knowledgeable people in, uh, on that PBS American Masters um, documentary series. So here's basically the storyline of Ted Williams' last at-bat of his career. September 28, 1960, the last day at Fenway Park. Wednesday afternoon, otherwise meaningless game, and Jack Fisher was the pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles. That day, going to the ballpark, it was cold, dreary. It was, it was a terrible, it was not a good day for baseball. Ted walks in one of his at-bats, and he gets two very long fly balls, but the ball wasn't carrying well that day. They were caught out there by the fence, and I hit them both good. It was a dull, damp day in Boston. The wind was really blowing in from right field, so I really didn't think that against that wind, he had a chance to hit it out. It's the eighth inning, and he knew this was his last time at the plate. People realized they were suddenly seeing Ted Williams for the last time as a player. It was not that big a crowd that day, only about 10,000, but they were all standing and you knew what they wanted. And can you deliver in that situation? How hard is that to do? The first pitch was a ball. The second pitch was a fastball and it was pretty much right down the middle of the plate and he swung and missed it. I missed it and I to this day don't know how I missed that ball. And he said, I can see it going through his mind. The old man can't get around on the fastball. So sure as I'm standing here, I know that fastball's coming again. I knew I was going to get another one because he couldn't wait to say, well, I'll throw this one by him. Fisher throws the ball. And if there was ever going to be a time when he would go back on his pledge of not wanting to tip his cap, that would have been it. And he said later that as he rounded second, the thought crossed his mind. I thought about it. I thought about it. But um, just something I couldn't quite do. He just kept the head down and kept churning and went right into the dugout. Of course, people are still cheering and asking for a curtain call and this, that, and the other. And so I kind of fumbled around on the mound and back, grabbed the rosin bag, took my time giving him a chance. And the umpires and his teammates and the manager, Mike Higgins, waving him out. Ted, come out. I look in the dugout there, and he waved to me, go ahead and pitch. I'm not going back out. I'm gone. Goodbye. <laughs> Over. That, of course, coming from uh, American Masters, uh, a PBS documentary series. Very good, of course. And yeah, legend status. Last at bat of his career, hits a bomb, hits a homer, you know, against the conditions. Crazy. Yeah. So post-career, uh, of course, he is inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, in 1966, he gets 93.4% of the vote. Uh, that may seem low, but obviously he was not on good terms with a lot of the media, the baseball writers, and that is believed to be a reason why a lot of them didn't vote. And in 1968, he wrote The Science of Hitting, a book which is still to this day referenced. And in his Hall of Fame speech, he said, quote, 
I hope that someday the names of Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson in some way could be added as a symbol of great Negro League players that are not here only because they were not given a chance. Uh, so I would say Ted advocate once again, like this is little past the civil rights movement, but he was advocating for these Negro leaguers. You know, I, you've probably heard of Satchel Page and Josh Gibson before. Of course, Satchel Page, uh, I believe, actually did get to pitch in the majors, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. Gibson did not, unfortunately. But his numbers are ridiculous, if you can look at them. Uh, and pa- Page and Gibson would get in in 1971 and 72, respectively, to the Hall of Fame. And, and Ted Williams managed the Washington Senators slash the Texas Rangers from 1969 to 72. And it didn't, unfor- it didn't work out, unfortunately. And uh, in 1970, he said his most famous quote ever, quote, a man has to have goals for a day, for a lifetime. And that was mine, to have people say, there goes Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived. And he started to become more friendly with the fans and the media, you know, sort of changed his, his character around. And uh, he became the first Red Sox player to have his number retired. Uh, that happened in 1984. And he later on started to help his son with a memorabilia company. And in 1991, celebrating the 50th anniversary of his 1941 season, he did it. He did the unthinkable. He tipped his cap to the crowd at Fenway Park. Three years later, in 1999, the MLB is hosting the All-Star Game at Fenway Park and they're doing the all-century team. And one of the most iconic and legendary moments uh, of baseball history happened pre-game. Ladies and gentlemen, he wore the Red Sox uniform for 22 years. He wore the uniform of the United States Marines for four and a half more. get chills watching the video then you're not a baseball fan or not human yeah i mean it 
it was it's spectacular to see the amount of respect that was that was shown i i ran the video a bit long i might edit a, a chunk of it a, a bit later but i had to get everyone crowding around him once yes. he finally once he finally made that loop to just show especially from like position players you know ted williams in terms of career-wise, you know, top two. Even, like, Randy Johnson in there, too. Like, they showed some pictures. Tom Seaver I saw in there. I mean, yeah, he's just such an influence on the game of baseball, and there was so much respect sh shown for him. It's interesting because you don't really hear from him that often. Uh, and he didn't really put himself out there nationally after at really any point, uh, and that was kind of the most public thing he ever really did outside of playing baseball. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, a few years later, on July 5th, 2002, Ted Williams passes away at the age of 83, and he agreed to be frozen after his death for the possibility of coming back to see his children. Yeah, and, you know, that's part, part of the legacy. He's, <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he's frozen now, and maybe, maybe he can come back, see Who everybody. Knows? see how the world has changed in the past 18 years. Now, now would not be a very good time to do that, though. Yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> definitely, especially it talk about at risk. Mm -hmm. Very at risk. Yeah. But ultimately, his legacy is for how great of a player, how great, especially of a hitter he was. Uh, he leads the Red Sox all time in wins above replacement, offensive wins above replacement, Average on base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, home runs, and walks. And all time among the entire league, his 521 home runs ranks 20th all time. His 1,839 RBI ranks 15th all time. And his 2,021 walks ranks 4th all time. And this is a guy who had less than 10,000 plate appearances, and he ranks 4th all time. Yeah. His baseball reference war ranks 11th all time among position players, and his fan graphs war ranks 8th. His offensive war ranks 6th all time. That's kind of the baseball reference uh, measurement for, you know, offensive production. And then fan graphs, or fan graphs uh, measurement of offensive production is offensive runs above average. In that statistic, he ranks third all-time, right behind Bear Babe Ruth and Barry Bonds. And uh, also, you have to consider his, you know, rate statistics. He didn't have, you know, as full of a career as, you know, Ruth, Bonds, and a bunch of other guys. His 11-16 OPS ranks second all-time among all qualifiers. That's like minimum Unreal. plate appearance. Unreal. Then his 634 slugging percentage also ranks second. His 190 OPS plus also ranks second. And his 187 weighted runs created plus ranks second as well. But where he ranks the best is on-base percentage. His 482 career on-base percentage is the best all-time among all players with, I believe, 5,000 career plate appearances, ranks first all time and then where he also ranks most all time his career walk rate which is 20.6 percent that is also the 
the most or the the highest walk rate of all time and he you know in terms of what he was able to do in in uh, single seasons and how he was able to carry that over he led the league in OPS 10 times that's tied for the third most amount of times uh, anyone has ever done that in baseball history he also led the league in slugging nine times that is tied for the second most amount of times anyone's done that in baseball history and after you know after his rookie year he didn't lead in 1939 his rookie year he didn't lead in any of the slash line categories and then after that rookie year there were 12 seasons where he qualified to lead in on-base percentage slugging percentage and ops i think the plate appearance minimum is like 502 or something like that mm-hmm. and in those 12 seasons in all 12 of those seasons he led an on-base percentage every single time. He was this undefeated. guy could not stop getting on base, whether it was a home run or whether it was a walk. He just got on base like no one, literally no one else was able to do. And uh, his, the amount of times he led, led the league in on-base percentage, obviously 12 times. And that, that is the most amount of times anyone has done that in baseball history. And this is a guy who qualified a total of 13 times you know, a lot more guys have qualified more times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Ted Williams, you know, last week we did Mickey Mantle and we talked about, you know, Mickey Mantle is, you know, a Hall of Famer that still has like a what could have been factor, what was his potential. Ted Williams is probably the ultimate example of that though, because, you know, five years of his career were interrupted by, wars you know the world war ii and the korean war you know most careers you know in the that go throughout the 40s it's it's mostly like one war i don't i don't know if any baseball player besides ted williams went to both wars but he did and you know he faced the consequences of it he missed his age he missed his age 24 25 and 26 seasons due to world war ii and he missed most of his age 33 and age 34 seasons due to the Korean War. <clears throat> so what I did, I took out the 1952 and 1953 seasons and I, you know, I added his 162 game pace to, you know, the five seasons that were missing, 1943, 1944, and 1945, 1952, and 1953. You take out uh, all the numbers from 52 and 53, and then you put a 162 game pace on all five of those seasons. So if if that happened, which you know it likely probably would have happened because he never really. You no, know it could have. It could even have been more because like age 24 to 26, that's his prime. Like that's the best years of his career he could have lost. Due yeah. to the war. coming straight off a triple cl- uh, a triple crown mm-hmm. as well like you could have had three of the best seasons in those in that time above yeah. his, above his average who knows what his potential was but if you take out those and you know add the 162 game pace to those five seasons uh his total number of hits would be 3553 which would be fifth all time his career home runs would be 692, which would also be fifth all time. And at the time, that would have been um, that would have been second all time. And maybe he would have stayed an extra season and tried to uh, break that 
Babe Ruth record. He would have had 2,452 RBI, 2,452 RBI, and that would be most all time. Also, his 2,414 runs scored in this uh, world with no wars, those 2,414 runs scored would also be most all time. And his 2,715 potential walks would also be most all time. This We would be talking about top three player of all time, most likely. And in fact, his, you know, if, if this pace goes on with his baseball reference wars as well, his 161.9 potential baseball reference war would be third all time among position players. And Fangraph's war was more nice to him. His 176.5 Fangraph's war would be the most all time among position players. According to Fangraph's, he would literally be the best player of all time. So you have to think of what these wars kind of meant to his career. It's uh, you know, it's, it's tough, but you know, it, that's how it was back then. You know, you had to serve in those particular wars and, you know, you, you can only think about what would have happened if there were no wars, if we, if we lived in a peaceful society, what would, uh, what would happen with Ted Williams's numbers. But the legacy of Ted Williams, ultimately, he was like, he was described in documentaries as like the real life John Wayne. He went to the Korean War. He almost died on his third combat mission, his third out of 39 combat missions. And, you know, you know, the Americans uh, kind of turned out well in that, in that war, helped him out a little bit. And, you know, he was a great fighter pilot. And, you know, to add to his fighter pilot abilities, he was a Hall of Fame, and this was mostly post-career, but he was a Hall of Fame fly fisherman, which I think Daniel mentioned earlier in the show. A Hall of Fame fly fisherman. The guy loved to fish, and apparently he was spectacular at it. And, you know, when you add on top of that, obviously he's the best hitter of his generation for sure. I would say, you know, career-wise, top two of all time, you know, if you, if you just ignore the eras and just each era against each other. You know, Ted Williams is probably top two right behind Babe Ruth in terms of what they were able to do in their career. And also you have to consider, you know, Ted Williams, he was a Boston Red Sox player, you know, only made it to the World Series once. And that was hard to do in, in a 19-year career, especially when there's only eight teams in the league. So he was on a struggling Red Sox team and he was the perfect counter to Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio kind of had all the glory of being, you know, a, a, a you know, like a nine-time World Series champion. I'm not, I'm not sure how many World Series champions he, World Series championships he had, but he won a lot of championships. He was always in the playoffs. He was always in the national spotlight, and he got all the glory. He won two MVPs that Ted Williams actually should have won in in 1941 and 1947, and, you know, DiMaggio would kind of tease Ted Williams you know, for lack of team success, even though, you know, Williams was doing more for his team than Joe DiMaggio was doing for his team, for sure. You know, it's kind of a silly argument, if you ask me. And, you know, the perfect example of, you know, DiMaggio kind of getting 
the glory. You know, he was still a spectacular player, still no doubt Hall of Famer, but he got all the glory that Williams didn't really uh, get at the time. So DiMaggio, he gets all the love for his hit streak, um, you know, that 56-game hit streak. But we all know, with, you know, it's modern baseball. You know, getting on base is ultimately what you should be trying to do instead of getting on base via hit. Get on base however you can. And, you know, Ted Williams' 84-game on base streak hardly gets recognized. I mean, I found out about it, like, a couple weeks ago. I was looking at Albert Pujols' on base streak to see where it uh, stood amongst amongst the rest. And then I see Ted Williams has an 84 game on base streak. That's crazy. And it's crazy that no one really knew about it. And, you know, not a lot of people still know about it. I'm sure a lot of people who are perhaps listening just learned about it today. And, you know, that on base streak doesn't really get recognized. So I think that's the perfect example of him versus DiMaggio. And, you know, Williams was also important, you know, just as a person, you know, you look at how he was able to progress things, you know, in civil rights, at least within the baseball world, you know, his relationship with the first Red Sox African-American player, uh, Pumpsy Green being his throwing partner, kind of welcoming him into baseball and welcoming more African-Americans into the Red Sox organization and the rest of baseball and how how he was able to, make sure that Negro League players were getting the recognition that they deserved. I mean, they created, you know, after his speech, they created like a, uh, basically the Negro League Veterans Committee, sort of, in a way. They created a new committee to vote in Negro League players, and that's how, you know, Josh Gibson and Satchel Page were able to get in. And ultimately, his legacy is kind of just a pure hitter, you know. You know, he wasn't the best defender in the world. He was probably a replacement defender, but he was an absolute scientist of hitting. He, he made, he boiled it down into an art form. And it, he, could have, he could have taught hitting it like MIT. Yeah. He, he had a PhD in hitting baseballs. I mean, I can't, he's one person that I would have liked to see like how he would translate today. Like if he had, you know, a weight room, if he had a slow motion video, I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah. What he had StatCast. Yeah, StatCast. I can't imagine what he would be able to do. Ted Williams was probably on launch angle before anyone else. Yeah, probably, probably. And, you know, he continues to influence even current players. I know Joey Votto in that, yep. in that documentary was um, praising Ted Williams and the science of hitting, which was written, uh, like I think it was 50, exactly 50 years prior to that documentary where he has the 77 baseball uh, strike zone. And Wade Boggs, in fact, another Red Sox player, Wade Boggs read The Science of Hitting his senior year, and he broke out of a slump because of it. He, it taught him patience and discipline and, you know, picking the right pitch and being able to, uh, you know, utilize pitchers' strengths and weaknesses. And, yeah. You know, he he was a scientist of hitting. He continues to influence people uh, in the game today. His swing was a work of art. He worked on his swing constantly. He would, you know, he his warm up would be like uh, looking at a floor length mirror and just kind of looking, just looking uh, at himself in the mirror and practicing his swing. 
And like when I was watching the, the documentaries and stuff, it made me want to pick up a bat. I'm not even a, a huge hitter. I'm more of a, of a pitching type, but he made me want to, you know, test out my swing. I haven't swung a bat in forever. But yeah, uh, little, that's that's the that's the Ted that's my take on uh, Ted Williams. So I have a couple bonus stories. Uh, I don't know the exact story, but I believe uh, when Mike Piazza was like a teenager, uh, he met Ted Williams somehow, and Ted Williams like gave him batting lessons that helped him become the Mike Piazza that we know today. And he was of course at the All Star game. And. Uh, yeah, so that was obviously, you know, another example of how he influences uh, more modern players. Uh, but my initial take, uh, I don't remember where I heard this, but sometime over the last week, I heard someone that said, like, you can only be great at one thing. Not if you're Ted Williams. You can be great at three different things. You could be great at hitting, you could be a great fighter pilot, and you could be a great fisherman. He did all those at essentially as high a level as possible. And he was fantastic at all three of them. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And that is where we close the book on Ted Williams. The greatest hitter who ever lived. The greatest hitter who ever lived. Uh, That's how he wants to be recognized. I Mm -hmm. totally understand that. Put in all all that work. And uh, that closes the book on Ted Williams. That ends part one of uh episode 38 of the show to be named later mm-hmm. uh, on friday or if you're listening past friday the 29th if you're listening past that we'll have a 1995 mariners episode this is the this is the te- this is going to be possibly our best one it's going to be tough because it might not get better than talking about this team this is under the radar the most intriguing team of all time yeah, just one of the greatest stories ever in baseball. And yeah, we'll have that episode ready for you on Friday. Uh, you can, uh, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you can watch the videos with us on YouTube. Go to go and subscribe at STBNL with Christiana and Daniel Curran. And you know, if you're on YouTube, just finding out about uh, Spotify. As of this date, as of this recording, we are on Spotify, and uh, we're not on Apple Podcasts yet. They take a little bit to approve, but that should be that should be getting going in like the next month. Yes. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel underscore Curran, and we hope to be seeing you. Also, next episode we're going to be picking our team player and team for the mm-hmm. next week. Uh, so make sure to check that episode out more importantly we're going to be talking about the 1995 mariners so we hope to be seeing you on the other side of this episode uh part two i'm gonna want to miss this part two of the of episode 38 of the show to be named later the 1995 seattle mariners saving baseball in seattle see you on friday